This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm a card carrying Bayesian at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Just uh, next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. We have guests. We have two longtime friends of the show, Rick Peterson at the bottom of the hour and Neil Payne at the top of the hour. Between now and then, open lines. We have a few things to talk about. I've been away. Whole crew hasn't been together in a while. I'm very curious. Guys, what has caught your eye? I'm going to jump in. Uh, um I, I sat down to go, at a wedding just as the ceremony was about to begin with the Eagles up 17 to nothing. We yeah. have about three and a half minutes to go. 98.5% on the win probability table. Turned it off. You know, it's a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy next to me in the middle of the wedding goes like this. Apparently hmm. he had been f- tracking the game on, <laughs> right. on his phone. And that I'm was like, a thumbs what? down. That was a thumbs <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah, that was sign. his thumbs down. And I looked at and, I, and of course I'm thinking, how does how does a team lose seventeen to nothing with that little little amount of time? How does a team lose twenty eight like when they're <laughs> twenty eight to three with that little time? Yeah, it, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Uh, so what what imp- did, did did anyone find this particularly interesting? Just just a collapse, and the collapses just happen, or any explanation? I find it particularly enjoyable. I don't know about you, <laughs> you guys. It's not interesting. No, I mean, a defensive implosion. I mean, like, basically, it, it was a defensive implosion. And I think this does, these kind of lead blows probably happen three, four times a season, I would guess, right? Well, if, the, if, the, if the probability tables are correct, I would guess they should happen, well... How many situations? I mean, yeah, it would probably be three or four times a season. Maybe that seems like like high, three, maybe. like a three score difference being made up in the fourth quarter. I feel like that probably happens three or four. But times this wasn't a just a fourth. Are you quarter. sure? I'm not convinced. I watched the game. I'm not convinced it was just three and a half minutes left. I thought it was five minutes. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I the think way it was I more time than quarter, that. I think but. it was almost a full quarter because I think they scored their first touchdown. But I agree with Shane. It was a defensive implosion. Number one, and then number two, you know. It also shows that the offense can't just grind out first downs when they need to. So, I yep. mean, two things, right? I mean, this is also, t- people talk about the Falcons. Obviously, you're bringing up the 28-3. Yeah. There are two things had to happen for the Patriots to win that Super Bowl or for the Panthers yep, yep. to win the game. It's not just that the Panthers could score. The Eagles had to not score. Yeah. Well, in the Falcons' Super Bowl, it's not just that the Patriots yeah. had to score a bunch of points. The Falcons had to stop scoring. Yeah, well, like, so, was two- there anything intellectual that the Eagles did wrong? They didn't. Uh, I mean, I mean, anything I, from the point of view of of, of play calling, their, their decision yeah, making. It, it, it's it's it's. N- I I I don't think you can point to any one thing because it's interesting because you know my immediate reaction is that they didn't run enough. They didn't establish enough of a running game. Like right. one or two running first downs would have made that comeback much more improbable. That said, you go back to the Atlanta Patriots game and you know they did they, the same thing. They, yeah. yeah, I mean they 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 went away from their running game. Um, though there was, you know, all they needed was like one first down in that particular game, I think, to sort of like shut the door on that. But yeah, or even just not a sack and a field yeah. goal from the greatest kicker in the history of the NFL, percentage wise. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. It was very surprising. You know, um, 
And it's actually, you know, it's one of those things I was thinking about it. It's related but unrelated. You and I just briefly, before the show started, we're talking about the Sixers game last night and how yep. the Sixers lost that game at the end. We'll, I could talk about it's that a bad in a week second. for Philadelphia. It was a bad week for Philadelphia. But it made me realize how small moments can really change the whole season. So if you think about Carolina, I believe they're 4-2 and two now. That's right. Now, they came back against the Eagles, extraordinarily unlikely. You guys don't remember because I pay attention to that division. Um, they won the previous game with a 61-yard field goal against the Giants with no time left. So if those, let's call it, two instances don't happen, they're not thinking, man, we're a playoff team. We may win this division. We could be the one or two seed. They're two and four. Yeah, they're, they're, they're in fourth they're place in their division, yeah. and they're selling. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, like, it's a, the, the Philadelphia game, I think, is especially consequential because, you know, the way it's shaking out, it's a little early to say this, but these we're talking about two teams that could be competing for the wild card. Absolutely. As we well. could look, the Saints look like the class of the NFC South. I, I, at least at the moment, it looks like they're the class of the NFC That's South. Right. That's right. No, I mean, like, the Saints, I mean, kind of, it, it, it's still hard to sort of see what the top teams are in, in the league at this point because you know, every but, week surprises you. But, I mean, it seems like the Rams. And the Saints are kind of the class, and maybe the yeah, the Rams and the Saints are basically the ones that really stand out in the NFC. The a- I, NFC East is kind of all over the place. Well, Kate, Kate, I'm noticing uh, that you you still don't write off the Eagles. That you still give them a decent shot, not 50, percent but not not too far from that for making the playoffs. Yeah, that's probably higher than what the general public is thinking at this point. Yeah, because our priors are still in there, and yep. people. And, all, we, and also, we were like everyone else, we thought they were good coming in. We still mm-hmm. believe in them. Yeah, and you still study the games not just based on the outcomes. Because, again, the coin flips the other way for Philadelphia in that game, and we're thinking about them as, oh, well, they're probably going to win the division, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you also just start, you know, it's the same way in, you know, in every sport. You start just doing the math on it. So they're not out of it. They're three and four. But, you know, there is a team in their division that's four and two. And so now you say, all right, so there are two win, two losses behind the Redskins. There's eight or nine games to play. So now you think to yourself, is there, are the Redskins likely to be worse than 10-6? and six? Let's say they're 9-7. and seven even. Let's say you project 9-7, and seven, which means they're only going to go 5-5 five and five the rest of the season, which is definitely possible for the Redskins. Well, that means the Eagles still have to go 6-3 and three and have the tiebreaker over the Redskins. Yeah. And so you, start, you just start doing yeah. the math. I mean, that's the thing about football that's wonderful. You only play 16 games. And so every loss... Has, is massively high leverage. So now you say, well, maybe they can get to 10 and 6. Okay, well, what are the beliefs that a 3 and 4 team is going to go 7 and 2 the rest of the way? Well, it's not that, cons- it's very consistent with the priors and last year's 13 and 3 record and winning the Super Bowl. It's not that consistent with a team that's 3 and 4 that all right. of a sudden they're going to go 7 and 2. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, Dallas is also in there. Dallas um, is in and, there. Hey, what y'all make, make of the, the trade? So here's here's Gruden. Gruden's turned into Sam Hinkie. Who knew yeah. that he or whoever's calling the shots over there, personnel wise? But yeah. they, they dealt they dealt Amari Cooper to the. No, they're, they're, I mean, I, I, I have never seen. I, I don't. Well, maybe this is not true. I, I, it's been a while since I've seen a team torn apart this quick, like torn down this quickly. Well, they do, they don't do it in football. It, the Browns yeah. traded the Browns traded the, early, the 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 Alabama running back a few years ago, and it was like it was a third third week, fourth week kind of trade. Right. He was a former first round pick, 
and people were like, "Oh my gosh, this is like this is baseball, this is tanking, this is mm-hmm. this," and it's, it was it was notable because it's an exception. And when Gruden, no one expected Gruden to be doing this kind of thing. Gruden's so old school. I pull against him because he's so old school, and here he is dealing two of their better players. So, can you just explain what happened? Amari Amari Cooper is a former Pro Bowl yeah, um, he, wide receiver. He's, he's played four seasons. He's right. only twenty four. His first two seasons, he was over a thousand yards. Very accomplished wide receiver. His his last season and a half haven't been great, but if you remember last year, Derek Carr was injured most of the season, so who knows if it's like I was throwing him the ball. You know, who, Someone's got to get him the ball. Yep. So the Cowboys gave up next year's number one draft pick. Number one pick. First round pick. And First by, round by pick. the way, they did the same thing 10 years ago or something to pick up Roy Williams from Detroit at the time, I think. And yep. It was kind of a similar situation where they were they started poorly. And they, they had the sense that maybe we need another offensive weapon, and so they gave up a lot but to bring this guy so in. Just to be clear. Why do you think this is not a good trade? Is well, it is well, it not a good trade? Well, well, let me finish the anecdote first. It was turned out very badly then because Roy Williams never performed at the level okay. he had. But in general, the, there's little as surely valuable in the NFL as draft picks, and especially early picks, and especially if you trade them later, but you trade them for more picks, not for players. So they're giving up surplus, this first round surplus that's 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 so high in expectation for a player that you're you've got one year left on the contract and performance. Uh, so, is, so the contract is also, a real issue because part, I think this is a very good player. No, it's right? not just no? part, yeah, it's not just part of the contract. I think what Kate's trying to get to is so you have two assets, right? One is a 24 year old. Let's be clear, it's not a 33 year old wide receiver. It's a 24 year old. He's very young. He's on a first contract, so it's a good contract. Yeah, yeah. So that's very helpful, but. Two out of the three full years he's played, he's made the Pro Bowl. And now you say to yourself, no, 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 we're questioning, we're not questioning whether it's a good trade for Dallas. We're questioning whether it's a good trade for Oakland. No, Uh, I'm questioning. Exactly. That's what I am. I disagree entirely. Now I'm loving this. Because I heard this and I'm thinking... What's the, this is a, a, a Pro Bowl two two years? Well, I mean, you play so great for one so year. You think still it's a good trade for Dallas? No, I'm I don't have a decision. I want you to tell me what the reason <laughs> well, I, why this you is think. My, well, so and, uh, and I didn't think it was such well, a bad deal just, to, right, to so, trade a draft pick for a, a really top player. Well, this is no? the way I would look. This is the way I would look for it, and so that's why I'm on your side on this one. So let's imagine you're Dallas, and you're saying we're getting Oakland's pick. Now, the good thing about Oakland's pick, though, is it's going to be a very high pick. So that's another thing that makes it even. I mean. Oakland's not doing well this year. I think if they're one and five, one and six. So Oakland's pick isn't involved in this trade. Oh, no, Dallas's right. pick. Sorry, yeah. Dallas is going to be a good team. So they're going to be. A, it's going to be a middle to middle team, tier, middle yeah. tier pick. Yeah. If I told you that they could draft, let's say they draft a wide receiver at number eighteen or nineteen in the draft, and I told you they would have the same three years that Amari Cooper has had in his first well, that would three be years. A lucky draft pick yeah. on their part. Exactly. exactly. That's my they're point. trading for that's certain. Wh- th- that's why. That's Dallas- why I just said it's a good trade for Dallas. But they're I- getting a year of certain. Well, no, yeah, but you just- you, well, t- t- tell me what the rules are. Yeah, a year a year of cheap, but it's not like don't you have some year, sort of advantage to to, to, uh, to sign them at a decent? I mean, what's I mean an advantage? No. Do you, you have any kind at all? Might get a fifth year, maybe not on a first round pick, but there's a fifth year option for maybe the later draft rounds, not that one. So but, your concern so no, is the year and a half. Yeah. Otherwise, no advantage. Otherwise, yeah. no advantage. Okay. There, there's a built-in advantage for quarterbacks. He's going to be expensive. I mean, if 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 he does what Dallas wants him to do, which is be really good at wide receiver, he is going to be so expensive. 
and the chances of them resigning him are are low. This is and why, so this you're is, basically renting for a first a round pick. I understand renting a it's good, a rental uh, for a first renting round. a potentially good okay, player. Okay, so for let a me year. tell you what I think that means. I think that means that this is fundamentally about your time preferences. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is right. This is your Dallas wants to compete. You're sacrificing right long term value. For, but you can't make that decision all the time. It's fine to pull that trigger occasionally. Yeah. You need to pull the trigger occasionally. But there are there are guys out there who run teams who forever but, hold on who forever make that trade off. It's like they can always every every year it's we're going to make it we're going to make the play for this year. Every year they sacrifice long term value for a little bump an un- uncertain bump but a little bump in short term value. So there's a time and place to do that. But if you do it every year you're behind. The, the but problem, let's look at the, the context pro- of the situation though yeah. too. I think we're all pretty convinced that over the next year and a half. Let's just use that as the time frame right. for the moment. Oakland is not going to be a very accomplished team. They certainly oh, are not yeah. this year, and they traded Khalil Mack as well. Their best, maybe some could argue, the best defensive player. So they have that horizon to say, "Look, we know we're going to have to rebuild for." We're even thinking two seasons down the lines, but. On the Dallas side, that's why sometimes this trade makes sense for both sides. Dallas is thinking, we've got to find out if Dak Prescott's good. We've got a short-term window with our offensive line, which is getting older. That's why I like the trade from Uh, both sides. Okay, so it's a a neat principle from from negotiation. Just because one side does better doesn't mean the other side did worse. You can have gains from trade. Yeah, a different horizon here, very easily. Time preferences do go in that direction. Is it worth the price from Dallas's perspective? That's that's an important question. Well, you so, let's ask the question: Is Dallas competitive this year? N- yes, Dallas is but, competitive yes, this year. yes. And aren't they but, more competitive now? Yeah, that but I mean, up? so I mean, this trade to, for this trade to make sense, you have to conceive of Dallas as a win now team, and I'm not sure we I would have talked about them that way. Like in the uh, like coming into the season, that this is definitely a and, team that's going for and, it, and I think this win now uh, philosophy is largely misplaced. Yeah, Nine so, times so, out of ten, it's largely misplaced. We have a phone call. We're going to go to Dan in Atlanta. Dan, welcome to the show. Top of the morning to you, fellas. Top of the morning to you. Hey, a couple quick things on that. I also saw that Philly, I think, offered a second round for Cooper. So it's a little more reasonable. But or I they could have Josh Gordon for a fifth rounder. <laughs> that's what I was just going to say too. Is is New England gave up a fifth a couple weeks ago for Josh Gordon? You know, so I just find that interesting. And then to know that Dallas also the big thing with Dallas and the Cooper trade is, I think I read was Demarcus Lawrence that the good defensive end is up for a contract, so they don't know how they're going to make it all work either. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But. The Giants, I think, are also on a fire sale, too, because I'm a Giants fan. So hopefully they'll start getting some picks and maybe they'll go after Derek Carr and then Gruden will totally tear that thing down. Well, the the whole idea that there are fire sales in the NFL now is fascinating to me. I think it's fantastic. The Giants did just trade Eli, Eli Apple last night, their starting cornerback. Is that right? Yep. Okay, here we go. Traded last world. night. It's the wrong whole, Eli is the joke world. would go. Yeah, that was the, that's the way the joke. Listen to Sports Talk Radio on the way in. They traded the wrong Eli, oh, and when's my, the other one going? Can you imagine who, what they would have gotten for Eli Manning? All right, so Dan, so Dan, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Dan, you initially mentioned this Josh Gordon trade. Yeah, so that, so, and that, that sort of falls. What I was going to say is, is that – if Dallas was going for win it now and wanted to like load up and was willing to trade future draft picks, I mean, A, just re-sign Des Bryant and don't trade any draft picks. That's one picks. thing that confuses me, too. B, if you don't like that somehow, trade for Josh Gordon, give up a fifth rounder. I mean, 
Amari Cooper probably is a little bit better than. And I don't even. I mean, I mean that's the cost is so much lower for Josh Gordon, and that was available earlier this season. So, one, they're they're different kinds of receivers, right? They're playing different positions. Yeah. There, Gordon being more of a slot, but I'm curious how he's worked out so far with the Pats. But of course, Gordon comes with all this baggage. My mm-hmm. God, you got That's true. Here is Belichick yet again saying, "Look." He might be a disaster in any other locker room. We can handle it. But, of course, you would agree. I mean, you obviously, you're the person that's done more on draft pick value than anybody else. Trading a fifth-round pick versus a first-round pick for a, I mean, there's two different high variances. One is, I think everybody knows if Josh Gordon's mind on right and he's coached properly, he's a great wide receiver. On the other hand, a lot of us are having doubts if Amari Cooper is actually a number one wide receiver, which is the only thing you would trade a first-rounder for, if you think he's the number one. All right, this is Wharton Moneyball. You can jump in here. We just had a call from Atlanta talking football. Giants fan down there. Number, if you want to jump in, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Only when the hated Boston Red Sox are in the mm-hmm. World Series. Did these two guys sit quietly talking football oh, during yeah. the World Series? The, night, the yeah. night after the World Series We did opens. watch the World Series, though. And uh, I, yeah. felt, I felt uh, that, that I was obligated to watch, even though it, it makes me suffer. So it was a four-hour game, guys. What it, the heck? It's absurd. I mean, it's really not okay. I'm not one bit interested in watching a four-hour game. Remember that game a few... Last year, last year that... that was it a World Series game or was it an ALCS game? The Astros were involved, and it went like two and a half hours, and it was the most beautiful baseball experience I've had in the longest time. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was I a do. pitcher's duel. I don't know what game it was. Game three yeah. or something. Game two. Um, anyway, four well, hours I mean, last it's, night. It's, it's, it's probably not going to get better in the sense that, I agree. Um, you know, as we keep going to more, towards more bullpen usage, bringing in, you know, like about de- like 10 pitching substitutions per team a game. And, and, um, and, and designated hitters, right? So yep. they're, they're rolling into, they're using more position players. They're going through the whole roster, essentially. And now they've built these rosters. This is a good thing. They've built rosters for guys that can play different positions. Yep. And so for pinch hitting, I, mean, I said designated, pinch yeah. hitting is like less costly now because it right. doesn't affect you defensively. So last night, the key play happened because the... The Dodgers coach pulled a a reliever who had yeah. already performed well, but he's about he didn't like he was going to face, so he pulls him. But then the Sox match him with a pinch hitter, yeah. who then hits a home run. Yeah, so yeah. The thing that well, shocked me just from looking, I only saw some of the game, but the thing that shocked me from the box score afterwards is again, I'm looking again at Clayton Kershaw's numbers during this game. Yeah. He didn't pitch well. He did not pitch we well. Do not, it's no longer a small sample. That no. guy seems to struggle. Well, he was, the he was extraordinary, but uh, in the second to last game, it, it was. But here's, but here's the thing I've noticed again. The number that shocked me of all the things, we've always talked about what can you learn from just looking at the box score. Since when does Clayton Kershaw walk essentially one batter an inning? Oh, um, that's What happened to the, the old Clayton Kershaw? You remember there was a season where, I forget the numbers, he had like 250 strikeouts and like 10 walks or something. All of a sudden, by the way, he gave up no home runs, four innings, five runs. No home runs, though. Yeah. So I'm starting to think he can't get guys out anymore. With his stuff, let's call it over the plate. So he has to kind of, and he has a piece facing a very patient Red Sox team. He threw an extraordinarily large number of pitches in four innings, walking a bunch of guys. This shows me that, I hate to put it this way, he kind of knows that he doesn't have the stuff anymore just to get him out with his A stuff. So he's got to nibble this and that. His control's not that great. But when did Kershaw become a no. guy that walks a guy in any? I mean, when just, did that it, happen? It is worth, I mean, I, I don't disagree with your general statement. It is worth noting that, uh, I've been reading a bit, that the, the home plate umpiring last night was 
bad. Not was not good. No, was inconsistent at best, and that probably affected both. Pitchers. Although he was, he forecasted to be what what they called middle umpire. I mean, it's amazing you read this before the game. Well, you get an umpire forecasting chart. umpires. Yes, yeah. And they, they looked at his season. The and umpire he, this futures guy, are lit. This man. guy, this guy is because some umpires are are. They have different strike zones, and yeah, it's sure. not it's not unpredictable. So this particular umpire was a neutral umpire yeah. going ah, into the game. No, it's, and I don't think you were pointing out that he was biased. He was just no, inconsistent. no, no. He, no, he wasn't biased. He was high, high I, that's right. I mean, you know, if you look at the kind of pitching charts, he just missed, right. seemed to miss a lot. And so, I mean, that all affect both. So I mean, both Sale and Kershaw did not did not last do well. Oh, great. Long. So people tend to, as we all t- we've talked about many times on the show, people tend to overreact. So, Shane, just looking at you here, so let's imagine that every game prior to the series was roughly a coin flip. The Red Sox were favored by a little bit, but let's say it was roughly a coin flip. Do you, obviously the Red Sox are now the clear favorite to win the series, because they're 1-0. It's easier to get to 4. If they you started off, already. by the way, 60-40. Well, they started out 60-40. Yep. Okay, so how, uh, that seems really high. Wasn't they just minus 135? To start the series, that doesn't sound like sixty forty. This was well. This would be uh, this would be I believe five thirty eight. Elo, which is not the okay. Vegas, but let's imagine but sixty that's forty. Not that far away. How much by would the way. you? How much would you adjust now? Let's imagine they were sixty forty. How much would you adjust now? Are I they seventy five twenty five? No, I mean I would put them. I, I would just because they've already won a game. I would put them maybe at like two thirds, one third at most, at the highest for the Red Sox. Okay, so I just want to make sure that's. Only because I just want to make sure this is the point I was trying to ask you. Yeah. Only because they've won a game, yeah. not because your assessment of their ability is any higher no, and the exactly. Dodgers is any lower. Exactly. It's no, just because they've won. Exactly. Okay, yeah. that was my question. It's, just, it's a seven game, game series, and yeah, one just, game is a lot. You can't you can't learn that from one game anyway. Yeah, it's, we were, yeah I, no, I But I, I, I wanted I wanted to turn our attention back to the the observation you made in the beginning. This game took forever, and it seems that all these games take forever. And I was actually just recently asked by a reporter what I thought about the future of baseball. And the first question, and this seems to always be the first question, what is the what is the the problem with these extremely long games and how do we combat them? And this is the everyone's trying to ask themselves: Is this is this a problem number one? And I think the answer to that is yeah. yes, it is, and it's it's a problem for 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 viewership, and without a question. I mean, you don't. I mean, to, to commit four hours to a game, not just, just on not, the TV, not just I, on the TV. I, I even go to at the tons of baseball yeah. games. People are leaving. People leave all the time. People are leaving. They have to go home and go and to so work the people, next day. People have put together all these sort of c- kind of wild ideas to shorten the game, including there was one by the NYU professor that was featured in the I think in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, extensive. No, it was the Wall Street Journal. Jason Gay wrote an article about it the basic idea is that if you're ahead you get only two outs and that kind of keeps everybody together and and it it simulates out very nicely but it of course destroys any connection of baseball to its past and nobody wants to do that that's too dramatic so so i i thought it just worthwhile to point out that the the real culprit and not in the playoffs because the playoffs you have more time between innings they they increase that for commercials they also increase there's far more pitching changes in in the playoffs there's much more everything just goes slower in, in the playoffs and that would be a separate phenomenon but during the year almost the entirety of the increase in in longevity in the games is due to the time between pitches which is basically doubled from consistently under 15 seconds to now averaging close that's to 30 legislatable. seconds that's legislatable that should be that's legislative. Legislative. Yeah. exactly have the clock, they There's just ignore it. Right, yeah, they ignore okay. it. That's baseball's fault. They're, they get, yeah, they get no, I mean, and, that's right. And, and I think it's because this negative, the length of the game negatively impacts the very casual fans. Totally. The hardcore fans just don't care enough, and it's, you know, I ba- and I, that's why I don't think it's led to dramatic change yet. They don't, they, they, they don't, 
you know, the, the hardcore fans. Right. But, and, but, and but it's not going to change if you don't enough. talk about it. And one of the things is everyone's been talking about the problems with the length of the time, but without really zoning in on exactly what the problem is. Yeah. And we just need okay. to continually hammer this in. This is the problem. Too much time between okay, pitches. Good, good, good. By the way, Jeff Passan wrote a great piece in Yahoo. He's one of the great baseball writers, I believe, out there. He has a column up on Yahoo today about the game. And it's a very interesting and balanced take on the consequence. It's like, you know, people complain about Moneyball kind of ruining baseball. And he says, you know, in a lot of ways this is true because, you know, it's all, change the, baseball, all the I would baseball. Say ruin it. <laughs> okay, fine, but it's taking it in this direction that people worry about. So all the pitching changes, all the pinch hitting, that par- partly that's a result of this. The way they build their rosters, everyone's looking for an edge all the time. They recognize these small edges matter. So any managerial decision at any moment that could help is worth doing. And so you end up with all these managerial decisions. At the same time, he says, what do you expect them to do? They're trying to win. They're trying to get better at their craft. And so he writes a balanced piece, but he, he kind of does put it. He kind of does put it on that. So interesting to chase that down. But by the way, I learned something else reading this article. He says that uh, more than half the pitches in game one were off speed. Now, the reason this is notable to me, because as a distant, as a casual baseball fan, the story is it's all like strikeouts and home runs and it's and speed, speed, speed. And the guys are throwing heat like we've not seen before. And then he comes in and says half the pitches were off speed. And he says <laughs> fastball usage fell to an all time low during the regular season. Fifty five percent. All time low. So I, I reconcile this for me, because that's so different than I thought people were talking about. Well, this seems to be what the current state of research suggests is that the right way to, to get batters out is changing speeds and that the the certain set of pitches are, are far more effective of that. The curveball, the, the changeup, if you can throw it, but changeup is hard to throw. So basically it's the curveball, it's the slider. Do you think it's possible, um, Adi, also that because of the increase in the number of people that can throw in the mid-90s, that in some sense batters have kind of adjusted? adjusted. So in other words, when we were kids... If you could throw in the mid-90s, guys, guys had never seen that. Now everybody can throw in the mid-90s. So it's really you have to have change of speeds. It's, it is the – I would say it's the only consistent way to get batters out because 95 anymore is not in the tail of the distribution. It isn't, but uh, Mike Petriello wrote an article about the Houston Astros and their uh, ability to take a pitcher from another team – and then bring them to the Astros and take them from Improving. meh to awesome. Yeah. And how we, how they do that. Now, it's hard to know exactly what happens in their clubhouse. But what you can measure and look at is the change in the percentage of off-speed pitches. And essentially what they've done is look, essentially find pitchers who they believe are not using the right pitch selection. Wow. Have the stuff. Move them to, to Astro, the Astros. Tell them this is how you should throw. And okay. boom, they're a star. And another sort of <laughs> anecdote. <laughs> Another interesting kind of relevant anecdote is, is is David Price going into game two. So I mean, he this David Price is sort of you know has kind of like Kershaw, you know, underperformed his regular season expectations. And historically, the power pitcher, he was a high nineties guy when it actually meant something. But he but he has a, he has a great changeup, and he used it a lot more in game five of, of, of the Astros series, basically, and he had a lot more success with it. So, I, And he, he claims he figured out something mechanical in his bullpen session that allowed him to do that. By the way, to Kate's point, I, I'll make a prediction of how I think baseball is going to change. So just like right now, you have this stupid, I don't know if it's stupid, this thing to try to shorten the game's number of mound visits. I think you're na- I think eventually you will start to see you can only have a certain number of pitching changes you yeah. can only have a certain number of whether it's pinch hitters or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I think it's, it's not going to. Ch- that's not going to solve the problem. If you go back to my point, the problem. No, is, no. I, I, I think just, they. I think they need to start reporting not the time between keeping track of the time between individual pitches. They need to post the average time, because that's going to be something that you really can can 
have to target. And there should be, say, 15 seconds. And if you're consistently above that, there should be some kind of penalty. So you yeah, but I mean, the it's team. finally got to step off the mound, yeah, walk around. Sure. Take when they need it, yes. I just think limiting mountain visits and all that but is so a, much easier to enforce. That's my point, is that like, things, I mean, it's not I mean, going to solve the problem. <laughs> that's the point. You'll enforce well, I mean, it, and you'll still have four-hour games. Well, the last the last guy in there who gets shelled and you can't pull because you've used all your changes, <laughs> that's going to extend the game quite a bit. We don't, we don't want to watch that. But then, of course, people will, I don't say fake injuries, but then, it's, then there'll have to be an injury exception. Then all of a sudden, oh, I'm not, I'm not you know, I, oh, my arm hurts. <laughs> but then, okay, to, you can bring in another guy. I think we need to ask the question, why is, are the in-between pitches so long? I mean, we just, for, why we observe it, and it seems that everyone is just taking their time. Just right. The batting glove needs to be perfect. But they well, they, they I mean, can why? call time about 400 times before actually throwing a So pitch. is that the issue? Is it because they call time? Because they wander around the, the I mean, what's, what's causing this 30-second average time between Guys, pitches? Guys, b- before we hit the bottom of the hour, give me a couple of questions that are interesting to follow through the rest of this series like what's the most inter- give me a couple storylines to pay attention to i mean i think it's going to be uh i mean obviously it's going to really kind of come down to a battle of bullpens and this is where i feel the least wow. confident in the red sox is that i think the red sox bullpen is quite inferior to but the you've been saying that for Dodgers. three series well, of course i have the Red Sox have just mashed all the way through it. So it's not necessary. If it, the Red Sox just keep hitting everybody, it doesn't matter. It's not going to matter. Okay. It, it's, it's, he's such a lack of confidence in his own team. Oh. The real storyline <laughs> is this the best Boston team ever. Yeah, well, that <laughs> that's I mean, the real yeah. storyline. And, and, and are they going to live up to their hype? I mean, okay. and, and is it justified? It's funny how Shane just hones in on the one weakness. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> natural. It's natural. I was up late last night stressing out. You know how it goes. I mean, also remember. You guys don't understand how stressful <laughs> a bad bullpen can be. You guys right. never have that. That's true. And it's the Yankees. All I was never been comment is, yeah, I think Adi's point's a good one. Um, this Red Sox team beat 200 win teams to yep. get to the World Series. I think if they and do they're going to beat the, the number one team, uh, we think, if they beat the Dodgers in the National yeah. League in some convincing fashion. They had 108 I wins. Yeah. I don't know how you don't call this the best yeah, no, Red I mean, Sox I, team of all just time. Just watching them, they're the, best team, they're the best Red Sox team I've ever watched. I hope they finish it off so that they can kind of officially become that. Yeah, because uh, obviously, if they don't win the World Series, then nobody Too will bad. talk that way. Yep. But but they are the best Red Sox team I've ever watched. So did, remind me, did we feel that way about them at the end of the regular season? Yes. So their their numbers, no. their power rankings, if you will, I know they had the best record. Yes. But the Astros, some the people Astros thought were the had, best team. Yes. No? Yes. Yeah. No. We I did. mean that that's true. I mean, I think an argument. I certainly the argument I made a couple weeks ago was that the Red Sox. And Astros were essentially equal in underlying ability. The Astros had an inferior record just because they've had more injuries through the season. But they were like those; they'd kind of gotten those all taken care of, and were coming into the playoffs basically healthy. Okay, well that just says something. They're knocked out. They're not in the World Series, and yet they were supposed to at that point have been better than what we're now calling the best Boston Red Sox team of all time. Yeah. So all right, okay, you give me some things. I appreciate that. All right, fellas, that has been the first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after break. Welcome back to Word Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Kate Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audi Weiner. Got Audi for a little bit longer anyway. You guys can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Email is a great way to reach us if you're listening one of the times that we're being replayed. Four or five times over the week we're replayed. If it's not 8 to 10 Eastern on Wednesday, 
It's a replay, but you can still reach out via email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also send us real time. We do answer live emails on occasion. Reach us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle, at WMoneyBall. Send us questions, complaints, observations. Send us suggestions for over, under, whatever you'd like. We are rolling into our first guest segment, and we're delighted to have Rick Peterson back to join us. Rick, as many of you know, former Major League pitching coach. He was with the Mets, the A's back in the, the, not the Wharton Moneyball, the original Moneyball days, Brewers, and finally with the Oreos. He is the author of a great book called Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Always glad to have you, Rick. Welcome back to the show. All right. This is the World Serious. This is no fooling around right now. (laughs) That's right, man. They're so serious they're going to play for four hours. (laughs) Serious business. That's a short game. Well, they're getting paid by the hour now. I guess so. Is, is baseball like the rest of the sports? Like the playoff money is laughingly small. They're getting $5,000 checks, $10,000 checks, something like that. Everyone gets the same amount of money. Is that, is that the way it works? Uh, it does, but it's a bigger check than that. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's more in about that $350,000 range. Oh, but not per game. I guess I've got something in like the NFL, they, play, they pay per game, and it's, it's laughingly small compared to their regular salary. We should track this down. So, Rick, what, what, you took in the game last night. What what was your reaction to the game last night? What jumped out to you about the game last night? Well, I, I think just the fact that what, what you see, especially when you have two teams that haven't played each other and, and there's not that familiarity, and it, normally that gives an edge to the pitchers. But I think because of the analytics in today's games, you know, guys are just so prepared and, you know, if you, if you had some idea, like some of the analytics that they have a chance to, like, really look at to prepare for games, they're almost like simulators, you know. Well, tell us, tell us about that. So you, the Sox are going up against Clayton Kershaw. He's got a long record in Major League. A lot of these guys have hit him at some point, but they're not facing him on a regular basis in the regular season. But they get – tell us what the Sox they're, – they're a moneyed team. They're an analytics-oriented team. What are they giving their players to prepare for Clayton Kershaw? Well, they're they're given they're, they're going to know like what his what his overall tendencies are, and, and especially and it'll be as specific as you know. Listen, if he has his you know his better fastball today and he's ninety two ninety four, you know he's liable to pitch more of a game like this, or in certain counts he's liable to go in, in, in this kind of situation right here. He's liable to go more off speed, you know, because a lot a lot of times as long as they know it's either something firm or something like meaning a fastball or something off speed. You know, and, and you see the approach that the Red Sox had, besides the home run that Nunez hit, you know, most of their bats, they stay to the big part of the ballpark. They are, they are a fundamentally sound hitting ball club. This is not a launch angle, all or nothing, you know, type of ball club. And you see all the bats that they hit the ball back up the middle. Or, you know, when you watch them take batting practice, if you have the pregame on the MLB Network, oftentimes they'll watch teams take batting practice. Not yesterday because of the rain. But, but you watch J.D. Martinez take batting practice, he's hitting line drives over the second baseman's head. Hmm. That's his style of hitting. Why is J.D. Mar- Mar- Martinez so good? Look at his spray chart of homers. He very seldom hits a homer from the left fielder down to the left field line. The only way that that happens more than any time would be like a left-hander facing him like Nunez, and you throw a breaking ball towards him. You can't do anything else but pull that pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you look at that kind of approach, you start to realize that they are really difficult to face. Hmm. And, and if, if you're unable to locate a fastball inside for a strike, and especially elevated fastball inside for the strike, you're, you're, you're in big trouble. Because a lot, a lot of great hitters, they'll give, they'll give you something in that strike zone. I mean, I can remember, you know, like 
Carlos Delgado sticks out in my mind. You know, Carlos Delgado basically said, look, you, you throw a fastball inside for a strike about belt high, I'll, you do three of those, I tip, my, I tip your hat. I, I, you're, I'm out. But I'm sitting out over the plate, and at some point you're going to throw something out over the plate. And I can remember Tim Hudson facing them for the, for the third time in the series. I mean, it was the third game of the series, and we had shut him down. We had hit him a couple times, you know, because the ball got away. And, and Hudson says to me, he goes, you know, he is about the fifth inning. He says, you know, I haven't thrown a fastball down and away. We haven't thrown one fastball down and away from Delgado every time we faced him in all six games. He goes, what do you think? I said, <laughs> I said, I wouldn't do it. I, I said, but if, if, if he comes up and the count is, you know, 0-3 and, and we're up by five runs and you want to throw a fastball down and away, then go ahead and do it. I said, but the prerequisite is that we have to be up by at least three runs and no one's on base. <laughs> and sure enough, here we are in the eighth inning, no one on base, two outs, nobody on. He throws a fastball down and away and Delgado hits a homer into over a left fielder's head. <laughs> You know, Hudson's looking at me. I said, "Well, what, this is what he does. He's, I mean, hitters hitters have habits, and they're so good at it. And that and that's why I don't know if this is the best Red Sox team of all time. You know, which is a big hot topic. But they're they're definitely the the best from top to bottom, best lineup of all time. And the reason I don't think that maybe they're the best team of all time or questionable." You know, because when they had their better teams winning the World Series, you know, you had Pedro Martinez, you had Schilling, you know, you had Wakefield, you had Derek Lowe. They, they don't have that kind of pitching at the top of the rotation um, like they did back then. But but lineup-wise, there's no question about it. Well, Rick, uh, this uh, this is Shane. Um, the, this sort of well-roundedness of the Red Sox, do you think, like, having that kind of... I guess fundamental, well-rounded kind of hitting lineup is is more advantageous in the playoffs than this kind of all-or-none strategy because the all-or-none strategy, the, the homework, homer versus or strikeout kind of strategy, I guess the Yankees maybe exemplify that. Do you think that that is actually in today's baseball um, more well suited for for say regular season play than playoff play? Audie brought up a couple weeks ago that maybe weakness of the all-or-none strategy is it works against bad pitching but does not work against good pitching. What are your thoughts I, on that? I, I, think there's, I think there's some merit to that, but, but I think when you look at how the game has changed, I mean, yesterday was one of the first times in, in recent postseason history that you really got excited about, you know, this is Kershaw versus Sale, although, you know, big question marks about what, what Sale are you going to get, and, and obviously Kershaw is not the same Kershaw that he was a couple years ago. You know, through the back injuries, with his velocity down, you know. But but if you think back, you know, some of the Yankee, you know, for example, Yankee Red Sox series, they didn't even talk about the Yankees facing the Red Sox. You know, when you get a big game, it's Clemens faces Pedro. I mean, that's what they don't even talk about the teams. They talk about the two pitchers, or it's Gibson versus uh, versus um, Denny, or or um, I'm trying to think who it was, Denny McLean. You know, I mean, so you know, the game has changed because of all this bullpenning. And and I, and I think and, and and bullpenning really has allowed teams like Milwaukee, without that kind of strategy, teams that don't have really good starting pitching from one to four, at least one to four as you get in the postseason, one to three as you get in the first couple rounds of the postseason until you get to seven games, it allows a team like Milwaukee to compete because they wouldn't be able to do that without the whole bullpenning strategy. 
So, Rick, this is Eric Proud. Let me ask you a quick question. You know, a lot of teams talk about like what the Yankees have done over recently, which is why do they not that you you need a great bullpen? We all agree to that. But in some sense, they've invested in their strengths as opposed to potentially investing in areas of weakness. If you were going to try to improve the Red Sox going forward, let's even imagine you wanted to improve a hundred and eight win team that appears to be on its way potentially to win the World Series. Do you think they need more starting pitching, or will you just say, look, if you, you had to invest in something, keep investing in better hitters. Their pitching's good enough. How did you think about investing in strengths versus investing in weaknesses as you were working in baseball? Well, when you when you look at it, I mean, and I don't mean to avoid your question, but when you look at, for example, let, let's say the World Series, the way you look at it from a pitching standpoint, we've got to cover 63 innings in a, in a normal series, given the fact that there's no extra innings. And, and if you lose on the road, Red Sox or the Dodgers only covered eight innings. But you take the, you take your pitching staff and say, and then you come into the season and say, how are we going to cover fourteen hundred and fifty innings? You know, so when you when you break it down that way, an investment in a multi inning relief pitcher, you know that 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 adds to the strength of your bullpen. But as opposed to paying a lot of money for a starting pitcher, for example, that's just mediocre. That that may that may bode well because you give you, you, he picks up 75 85 innings for you in that in the course of the season you know that's a big that's a big chunk for you and then you come into the 63 innings that you have to play in in the last two rounds of the postseason to get to the world series a seven game series and obviously in the world series you know in, in that now you're looking at the fact that you know if i got a multi-inning reliever and a guy who's resilient you know i'm looking at in the first two games i'm looking at he can probably give me three innings in the middle three games you know, I'm, I'm probably looking. I can probably get four innings out of them during during that, and then another three innings in the back two innings. You know, so so when you're looking at that, you're you're looking at, you know, he's picking up close to nine innings for you. That's almost a complete game. You know, so as, as you put that together, and then and and I think the other thing that's happened is that the mentality of pitchers today, you know, is so much different because they're not stuck in these roles. You know, it, that that whole mold has been broken. And, and because it has been broken, and because of these bullpenning games, it's really, it's really added to the flexibility of how you can use your pitching. Because very seldom, you know, in the past, if you had a good solid back end bullpen guy, like let's say a Batances, you would never, you would, or even like let's say Milwaukee with Hader, to think that he would come in in the first or second inning is you'd be out of your mind if that happened like ten years ago. Well, now you actually have about four of those guys, and so right. you have one to burn in the first inning. But Rick, hi, this is Adi. I wanted to ask you about uh, the observation we made in the first ha- half hour of the show about the, despite the fastball being, you know, this is the era of the super fastball, the playoffs have seen fewer fastballs than ever before and more off-speed pitches. So what were your thoughts about why that seems to be the, the growing trend, at least among the better teams? I just think because because what's happening is the analytics are proving it out. You know, it's a copy. Everything's a copycat. You know, in business and and in sports. You know, so somebody breaks the mold and starts to be successful. People start looking at it. I mean, if you remember early in the season when Tampa started with their their opener, people went like, "Opener? What are you freaking guys crazy?" But an, an opener, and and now I mean, even when you watch like the MLB Network, you know, which is a lot of a lot of traditional baseball people that, that and, and most of the guys on the on the network played the game. You know that, that that was not the way the game was played when they played. And and but you and and you heard when they started talking about bullpenning, you know, years ago. Jesus, man, Brian Kenny was like they're ready to hang him. You know now now like they're all talking bullpenning. I mean they're even even to people who have been on the furthest you know right side of of the 
you know, of the innovation, you know, they're, they're talking about like, hey, well, why don't we start Hader, you know, in, in, in the Milwaukee Dodgers series? You know, so I think from that standpoint, and, and I think it's great because of the fact that it, even people with fixed mindsets are, are shifting to a growth mindset because either that or you're just going to get sit, you're going to sit on the side of the highway and get passed by very quickly. So we're talking to Rick Peterson. This is Wharton Moneyball. Of course, you guys can jump in here and join us, one eight four four. Wharton, one 942 Rick, of course, the longtime pitching coach in the major leagues and author of Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. What do you think is going to determine how this series plays out? When you watch Game 2, Rick, as a longtime baseball guy, what are you going to be paying attention to you think the average fan might not be paying attention to? Well, I, I think more than anything else, like if you start looking inside the numbers and you start looking at the fact that like how patient the, the Red Sox hitters are, and, and and they're patient, and but they're incredibly aggressive, and they're hunting certain pitches early in the count, and if they get them, you know they're they're, they're swinging, and you're looking at how careful, you know the the Red Sox, the Dodger pitchers have been, you know to their lineups, you know they're almost like pitching around guys, you know at certain times, and especially when you look at bets, I mean. I mean, he is so locked in right now. Like, if it's not a strike, I mean, he just doesn't swing. It's almost like they're going to find him if he, he's going to get he's going to get a pay, pay cut if he swings at a pitch out of the strike zone. Mm-hmm. So I think from that standpoint, you you just cannot pitch effectively and pitch behind in the count. You just can't do it. It's just you can't beat those odds. Not not for you can, you can for maybe an inning or two, but but for sixty three innings that you have to cover in 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 seven games times nine. You know, you just can't keep pitching two zero two one and be successful. It's just not going to happen. So, Rick, so. from the Dodgers' point of view, is this like a game seven? Like, if they go down two nothing here, you know, it's I'm huge. not saying they can't win. I, we know it's huge, but I'm just saying, do you? If you were managing the pitching staff right now of the Dodgers, and you say, look, if we go down two zero, we got to now beat them four out of five. This is a hundred and eight win team. Two of those games would still be at Red Sox. Obviously, it's 2-3-2 as a series. Do you do, I mean, would you play this like a Game 7 and worry about Game 3 and the Dodgers, you know, in two days from now? Yeah, with the exception of your Game 3 starter. Yep. Like, with the exception of your Game 3 starter, because, because you know, and, and that would that would go out the window if you got into deep extra inning games or an extra inning game. But, yeah, without, without question, because to, to go down... You know, to go down two and zero, you know, is I mean that's why the number games and and it's so funny that that you say this because, um, well, I'll, I'll tell it in a second. But you know, you sit there; it's this whole numbers game. You start the series and it's like, wow, seven games. All right, it seems like a lot of games. And then you lose the first one, and all of a sudden you're going, wow, wait a second. You know, we're going back to you know we're we're in we're we're in Red Sox, we're in Fenway Park right now. We're going back home. And we can't go back home two and zero, and then it becomes yes. Your point is, it's, it's a must game, and and I think that the teams that really do well are teams, and and, and the Dodgers do have a they do have. Um, I, I'm not going to say an advantage, but they do have an edge for their own personal team. I'm not saying it's an edge against the Red Sox. The fact that they've been in this situation before, they've been to Game Seven before, they know what that's all about, and and Game Seven is just so unique. Um, so you would play tonight. You know, saying that yes, I, we want to leave here one-one, going back home. That, that they, they then the Dodgers feel like they, they have an advantage. They're going back home one-one, 
And it, realistically, in your mind, you're saying, you know, we may never have to go back to Fenway. You know, we can close this out at home. But when then you get down to that Game 7, and it was so interesting, it brought me back to, like, Game 7 when, we were, when I was with the Mets. And, you know, your mind just plays all these tricks. First of all, like, when you hear teams talk about the, the postseason early in the season and even when they get to the postseason in the beginning, no one talks about winning the World Series very seldom. They talk about getting to the World Series. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the World Series, and then it's just like, if you don't win it, it's like, what the heck are we doing here? You know. And then, you know, in that Game 7, because in 2006, we were down at home in New York, down 3-1, to one, bases loaded, two outs, a 3-2 count, Carlos Beltran's up, one of our best hitters, facing Wainwright, a right-hand pitcher, and it comes down, and you're sitting there, and I remember saying to myself, you have about 20 seconds before this next pitch, and everything that you planned for in mid-February all the way to this moment, you got 20 seconds to find out, okay, are we going to the World Series or are we going home? <laughs> and it's just such an unbelievable mentally torturing, torturing like, you know, situation that you're in, and, and this this whole, like, you know, it's almost like, you know, you're thinking of Santa Claus and the new bike under the tree, and then all of a sudden it goes to coal. <laughs> it's like, you got nothing. You know, sorry about it. And, and it's not like you got next week to get a shot at it again. You may never get a shot at it again for the rest of your life, which is which has been my situation. We never got back to that situation again in my career. Well, that reminds yeah. me of the way the Astros-Sox series ended, that decisive game with that great catch and right. with that diving line drive that would have possibly, you know, turned the whole thing around. But in that one second, the the series was over. It went from two men on, we're going to tie the game, we're going to go ahead, um, we're going to come back in this series, and the, instead this guy makes this incredible catch. End of series, Astros go home. Exactly. And then, and, and then so it's really from the time that that ball came off the bat to the time that Benetton caught it, that, that now you have now you're down to milliseconds and and you're and you're and it's flashing through your mind so fast and you went from the new bike under the tree to coal. Sorry, well, but also that. Rick, you point out also the the point as well. Of course, they'll be back. How do you know that they're in a they're in? I hate you're to right. say it, but here's the two things you know: like you can guarantee the Red Sox and the Yankees are going to spend 150 to 200 million every year. So you don't know if they're the Astros. You're going to be back. How do you know yeah. that? You're right. You're totally right. And you, and you never know, even if you, I don't care who you are. Yeah. Even if you are the Yankees and Red Sox and, and are going to probably be contending every year, I mean, they don't make it back to the World Series or to the ALCS all that often. Exactly. What has it been, 10 years for the Yankees? Yeah. The Yankees have won, I keep saying to people, the Yankees have won one World Series in the last 17 years. There you go. One. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's glorious. <laughs> it has been pretty they nice. They won so many for so long. It's okay. You know, in those pressure moments, is it harder for the pitcher or the or the hitter, do you think? And, you know, it's easiest for the fielders, I believe, because they're just responding so instinctively. But it seems to me that it has to be harder for the pitcher because they have to initiate the whole thing. And so much of what the batter does is instinctive. What's your sense in these clutch moments that you're talking about, These un- the whole season comes down to one pitch kind of moments, do you think it's harder to be the pitcher or the hitter? Well, I, I guess the, the question really is not whether you want to be the pitcher or the hitter. Do you, do you want to have control of the situation, or do you want to react to it? And if you have the mind to control it, you definitely want to be the pitcher. There's no question about it. But if you're someone who you know, kind of feels like, I, I don't really want that control, Interesting. You know, I, I, then, then I'd rather be the hitter. 
you know, but but I'll, I'll say this, you know, it goes back to other sports as well. You're standing over the three-foot putt. Would, would you rather be the guy who, who's who's going to strike this putt to, to win the, the, right. the, the Masters, or you want to be the guy standing, the, the caddy standing next to the guy if he, if he, you know, hoping he misses it? Right. You know, which one would you rather and, be? And you, and you think, this is taking you toward, toward the work that you do, you think that's a malleable yeah. quality, that people can develop the preference for being the one who initiates and controls the action, yes? No no question about it. The, 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 you, you definitely can, can train the mind of a champion. There's no question about it. You know, I, I've had many pitchers that, many pitchers, well, when I co-directed the sports psychology program, Dr. Charles Marr, who headed up the doctor program out of Rutgers University, and we did 16 personality factor testing, we had pitchers that took the 16 personality factor test, and he sat in the stands with his colleagues saying, like, I cannot believe the behavior of this person on the mound based on the results of this 16 personality factor test. Someone who's totally in control, composed, focused, you know, under control, slow heartbeat, you know, that, that was not the person who took that test. So over time, they, they, had came, they came in with one profile, but with over time and with training, they had developed the ability to be more controlling. That's a terrifically interesting framework for us, Rick. And we're, we're out of time. We're down to just a few seconds. But I um, want to thank you for being on the show. Give us, give us one last bit. What, what, give us one thing on the, on the – how do we get to this point in the World Series? Like what's one thing that you think was a really important moment up to this point? Because we've got a lot of teams that are back home now that were worth watching. Well, I think more than anything else, I, I think it's just that, that, that mental discipline and that mental grind. I mean, how many people counted the Dodgers out? No, no, one, no one talked about the – people talk about the Dodgers not even making it to the playoffs, mm-hmm. you know, how, how badly they were, how badly they, they played. But, but in, in, inside the confines of that clubhouse, they, they believed in themselves. Now, right. I remember hearing, hearing interviews with Dave Roberts back in June, and he's saying, you know, listen, things aren't going the way that we want right now, but – you know, hey, this is it's not going to happen. Everything's not going to happen the way we'd like it to happen. But, you know, we, we know like where we are right now and we know what we're capable of doing. And we just have to keep grinding away and grinding away. All right, Rick. We, they, they got it done. They grinded away and they are now in the World Series. Thank you for the time. There's Rick Peterson. Appreciate it. Come back after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning, along with my colleagues and collaborators here, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. We lost Adi. We lose Adi on Wednesdays to the classroom. He's teaching stats right now. Just off the phone with Rick Peterson, longtime guest of the show, longtime major league pitching coach talking World Series and other baseball matters. Rolling now into our second guest segment. Delighted to have another longtime friend of the show, Neil Payne, joining us. Neil is senior writer and general editor. I'm not sure when he added that to his title. General editor at 538. Covers a range of sports. You can find him on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. At Neil underscore Payne. We can highly recommend Neil Payne as a follow, whether he's writing or talking. He has a podcast. What's your podcast called, Neil? Remind us that. Well, first of all, hey guys, how's it going? Good to uh, hear your voice. And uh, yeah, our podcast, uh, we, we've gone through a number over the years. We used to have one called Hot Takedown, which was just a kind of general sports one. And then uh, last year we did uh, a basketball one called The Lab, 
for the NBA. And that one's on hiatus right now. We're sort of uh, tinkering with things. We're taking it into the lab, if you will. Uh, and, and we're talking about maybe doing something else. So uh, if people enjoyed listening to 538 Sports Podcast, there, there might be another one at some point in the uh, near future. So Neil, Neil's kind of the decathlete of sports writers. Some guys, most guys actually focus on one thing or another. But if you go to Neil's page on 538 right now, let me just do a quick rundown. Because I think our challenge in this half hour is to see how many different sports we can talk with Neil Payne, so I'm 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 seriously about I'm serious about this. So let's start with because we don't do quite enough hockey, and there's a really interesting story in hockey going on right now. Your your most recent article is about the Toronto Maple Leafs, and um, the title of it is "The Leafs Needed an American to Become a Stanley Cup Contender Again." So tell us not just about that guy, but what's your take on the Leafs and hockey right now? Well, yeah, the Leafs are off to a great start uh, this season, and they are kind of famously this sad sack franchise uh they haven't won a stanley cup since the nhl expanded past the original six i think in 1967 uh, and they were one of the most successful teams ever before then they were like right there with montreal it would be like uh, if the yankees had stopped winning in the 60s basically yeah yeah it, or the it, red it, sox it, had stopped winning in the 1910s <laughs> exactly it's very strange they sort of view themselves i think as this sort of torture fan but i think a great comparison actually is the new york knicks in the sense that ah. they are sort of this flagship franchise. They're in Toronto. They're, they're in this very cosmopolitan place. They always sell out their games. Uh, and uh, they, they have this vision of themselves as this elite franchise. And they haven't won a championship in decades upon decades. And so uh, right now they look like they're as strong as they've been in a long time. And, and of course, Canada also hasn't won a Stanley Cup since 1993, uh, no Canadian team has. And so this guy, Austin Matthews, this 21-year-old kind of wonderkind who has 10 goals in nine games, uh, think about that for a second, uh, is, is their best what, player. What did, also, what, Neil, what did Gretzky used to do back in the day, one of the great goal scorers of all time? How many well, games Gretzky, per goal was he doing at his peak? He, he set the all-time NHL record with 92 goals in, I believe, 80 games, okay. uh, which is just a staggering number and i think he scored his first 50 goals in in the first 38 games yeah that's exactly <laughs> the right number yeah. 50 goals in 38 games wow. which is just mind-boggling people talk about 50 goals in 50 games that was always sort of um uh, a benchmark that that the greats would do like maurice rocket richard did that famously uh one season and so austin matthews if he keeps it up, which he absolutely won't uh, at this goal a game pace, but if he does, you know, right now he is scoring more than a goal per game. And the great thing about Austin Matthews is that he was born in California and he was raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Crazy. He is sort of this the the, the great irony, the the wonderful juxtaposition of this Canadian franchise that's desperate to win a Stanley Cup. It's just the next generation of it's it's just the next generation. It's what happens when all these Canadians migrate to these warm weather climes. <laughs> you eventually get this generation of random hockey players coming out of Florida, Arizona, and California. So, yeah, and and I think you know for all the the crap that Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL, gets for expanding like crazy into really untraditional hockey markets in the '90s, uh, and one of them was Phoenix. It was an expansion team. It was actually Winnipeg uh, moved down there. But uh, th- that Austin Matthews credits watching the Phoenix Coyotes, uh, the, the 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 team that sort of every traditionalist hockey fan sees as this kind of laughing stock. 
that is what actually got him into playing hockey, uh, and and now he's on the Toronto Maple Leafs and is leading them in scoring. So, so I just think that's such a fun story. And uh, that headline was a little bit of a little trolling the, the Canadian hockey fans. So, Neil, let's, it's all in good Neil, this is Eric Brad. Let's just do a little money ball here. So what's your prediction? Okay. Over under 50 goals for the season. How far do you regress back? So the guy's averaged a little over one. Even if he's a great goal scorer, he might score 40, 40 to 50 in a season. Do you put him over? If you had to make your prediction right now, does he end up over 50? Oh, yeah. No, I think he's more likely to be over 50 than not, because think about the pace that you, uh, you know, he, there's what, 73 games left in the season. He only needs to score 40 more goals. That seems very doable, especially since last year he had 34 goals in 62 games as a 20-year-old. And then as a 19-year-old, he had 40 goals in 82 games. So this seems like well within, especially if you can project him, you know, along like an aging uh, curve for, for goal scores, that as a 21-year-old this year, it seems within his capabilities for sure. Neil, who's, whose game do you compare him to? For those of us who haven't yet been able to watch him play, who, who does he play like? Well, you know, I, I, what's interesting is we talked about the 10 goals in the nine games, and he only has six assists, and this is sort of not new for him. He had, I mentioned he had 34 goals last year. He only had 29 assists. So he's one of these guys, and they're actually kind of rare, but maybe like a Steven Samkos or someone like that. These are guys that... Steven um, Samkos not is not rare. helping most of us. Neil, uh, what about Brett Hall? Well, Brett Hall is a good comparison, too. Right, the, these guys are not the Gretzkys. They're not putting up far more assists than they have goals. They, they are actually scoring more goals than they have assists, and that's relatively rare in the history of hockey if you look at like the great player season. Okay. Usually they at least have as many assists as they have goals, and in some cases, like with Gretzky, I think there were a number of seasons where he would have won the scoring title on his assists that alone is correct. if that's he correct. scored a single goal, which is still... <laughs> well, like I'm just looking, Neil. I'm looking at it right now. That. Rain Gretzky scored 894 goals in his career and ended up with 2,857 points. So he had almost mm-hmm. 2,000 yeah. assists. Or, or, or that yeah. 90... Well, Goal, goal I season, I think he had like over 100 assists, 120 assists, yeah. I think. Well, I think he would be the all-time leading NHL goal scorer for his career also if he hadn't scored a single goal. That's correct. What he's that 937, uh, 936 ahead of Yarmir Yager, and he scored 800. Yeah, if he's never scored a goal, he'd be the all-time point scoring leader Is in the NHL history. Insane. It is insane. All right, changing sports. We're trying to, We're going to test the limits of how many sports Neil Payne can cover in one half-hour <laughs> podcast segment. Second article, most recent. Is this the best Red Sox Red Sox World Series team yet. We talked a little bit about this in the first half. My contention is, at the beginning of the playoffs, people thought the Astros were the better team. How could they be the best Sox team ever if just two weeks ago we thought they were, or three weeks ago, we thought the Astros were better? Well, those two things aren't mutually exclusive, right? I mean, the Astros were uh, an all-time great regular season team. I think they had, what, 109 Pythagorean wins during the season? That's crazy, also, Mm -hmm. speaking of which. And so the Red Sox... You know, if they if if the Astros were one A in in Major League Baseball and the Red Sox were one B, uh, or you know more of a toss up than that, even um, then there's no saying that that doesn't preclude them from being the best Red Sox um, team. Uh, and I think the stats bear that out. If you look at you know their run differential, certainly their record, they won 108 games. Uh, and if you just look at like the the talent and the especially the young talent, I mean Mookie Betts <laughs> was one of the only players, maybe the only player ever to stare down a mostly healthy Mike Trout 
uh, and and beat him in wins above replacement, you know, head to head, and and basically win the MVP mm-hmm. against Trout at, at basically full strength. I know Trout missed a little time in the middle of the season, but I mean that tells you how great of a player uh, Betts is, and he's got company on that team too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shane said in the first section that just watching them, Shane being the big Red Sox fan, it does feel like the best team. What do you, when you say that? So Neil has given us some stats. When you say like from watching them just as a fan, what is it that most impresses you? I, I, I think it's that you just never kind of feel like they're out of a game. Like they, they seem to be able to at almost at will manufacture runs to get themselves in it. And maybe it is because they have a real a relatively well rounded hitting team. Um, or or they just sort of have a lot of complementary pieces, but I I just they always seem to be able to regain a lead or take a lead having lost mm-hmm. lost it. Yeah, I mean that mm-hmm. that's really and, kind of what I've noticed watching them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's something you know to to that point. That's something that jumps out to me as being a little bit different about this Red Sox team in comparison with some of those other teams is that. They can manufacture runs. They are basically a team built around more batting average than they are about on-base percentage yeah. or walks. Uh, and they definitely have power, but the, the 2004 Red Sox are this great paragon of the money ball with money, basically. Uh, they, they, they walked. They got you know all the three true outcomes, and, and they were kind of plodding and slow on the base. Yeah, I, I even think of the 2007 Red Sox with Ortiz and Euclidus right. and those guys. I mean, they would get on base a lot, but good luck moving, but moving Neil, them over Neil, once they were on base. You believe they could be considered one of the great teams of all time or great Red Sox teams of all times with not an outstanding pitching staff. You have no problem calling them one of the greatest when their pitching staff, I mean, I don't know, do they no, have a good game on their pitching staff? Eh. I mean, uh, yeah, Sale alone, I think, is uh, certainly he's on pace to be a Hall of Famer um, and uh, stands out as maybe, you know, he's in the conversation for the best pitcher in baseball. We'll say that. And as for the rest of it, I mean, you know, Boston fans have all these heart attacks about Craig Kimbrell. You look at his numbers and it's like, oh, you know, he's one of the still one of the best closers in the game. You know, he's uh, in, in kind of a down season by his standards. Uh, and that was kind of the way it was with this team, like, you know, uh, like Shane said, they would find a way to, to win. And then also, if you look at the stats that they had, it's like, oh, J.D. Martinez could have been an MVP in a universe in which Mookie Betts wasn't, you know, on the Red Sox. Like, there's all kinds of statistical cases that you could make for this team. Uh, and they won 108 games. I mean, that how often does that happen? That doesn't happen very often. Like, that's in the in the neighborhood of your, you know, 98 Yankees and your 2001 Mariners and, and teams like that. But as a good analyst, I'm glad you led with Pythagorean wins when we were talking about the Strohs as opposed well, to actual yes, wins. Well, it's all about the Pythagorean wins. Um. <laughs> it's not all about but In terms of determining the underlying ability, it's more diagnostic, as we all know. All right, we're talking to Neil Payne, of course, 538 rider. We're pushing him through his decathlon qualification here. We're done two sports. How many more can we get? His next article going back is on college football. It's a little dated because it's the most important games of week last weekend. We know what the most important games are this coming weekend. What's going to happen to them? Alabama goes into Baton Rouge. Finally, maybe going to be tested. And then over on the other side of the SEC, unfortunately, both of the big games are SEC. Florida and Georgia in the cocktail party, neutral site game. Can they? Can Can the Gators actually give... Georgia a run. What do you think is going to happen this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about both of those games because LSU is a team that, gosh, I just 
like, I don't know. I'm a little tired of Alabama. I think we can all, as as college football fans, say that we're a little tired of it. I don't know what you guys think. Everybody's tired of it. (laughs) But LSU is one of those teams that has the capability of actually challenging them. Maybe I'm overstating that some because who really has the capability of challenging Alabama? But I'm excited about that. And you didn't even mention Michigan-Penn State. That's a game in which Michigan, because Ohio State lost, and a lot of it will come down to that game at the end of the year. Uh, but Michigan's right back in the playoff conversation, too. Uh, we have a model at 538 that gives the probability of making the playoffs. And Michigan has a 25% chance, which is good for fifth best in the country behind Clemson and Alabama, who are, like, way in front of everyone else. Notre Dame, that one seems uh, like like a lock if they keep winning. And then Oklahoma is only at 30%. So really that le- that fourth slot, if things kind of play out for the top three as, uh, you know, chalk or whatever, um, you know, it could come down to uh, Georgia and Ohio State and Michigan and Oklahoma, one of those teams, uh, or an LSU. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned Michigan. We've been long on Michigan. Massey Peabody's been long on Michigan for a while. They, this is what happens every year in college football. It's one of the great things about looking at good analytics. You see teams that – are off the national radar, but they shouldn't be. So Michigan lost that game against Notre Dame. They actually looked pretty good in that game. They've got a phenomenal defense. They Penn State's really suffered since they lost that game against Ohio State. We still think they're pretty good. They'll probably give Michigan a run. But this could be the year Michigan finally gets over the hump. Of course, everyone's like, as you said, looking at that Columbus game. You mentioned Oklahoma. Adi earlier referred to uh, our friends Rufus Peabody and Jeff Ma, who have a podcast called Bet the Process. They're sports bettors, and they were arguing about Oklahoma. What's your take? Again, they got knocked out by Texas a few weeks ago, and all of a sudden people are kind of forgetting about them. What's your position on Oklahoma? Yeah, I do think that they're sort of the forgotten team, which is funny because they have the Heisman frontrunner, or at least you know, kind of co-frontrunner in Kyler Murray. Um, I think if they get that defense straightened out, and that's always the question for them, uh, is, is whether they can outscore, uh, you know, score enough to make up for that bad defense. But I don't, I don't think they have that tough of a, of a path laid out in front of them from here on out. I mean, you know, Texas has that, that trump card against them uh, for, the, for the Big 12. And, you know, they have West Virginia. It's a road game as their last game of the regular season. So, that you know, aside from that, though, I, I don't think they have that tough of a, of a path in front of them. And I think that's what's showing up in some of these probabilities, too, is that they have a 24% chance of winning out over the rest of the season, which is higher than Michigan. It's higher than Ohio right. State. It's higher than Georgia. Those teams still have to play the, in Michigan and Ohio State case they have to play each other but you know georgia and lsu and all these other teams texas even they have tough schedules well, yep. georgia's playing florida this weekend yeah. how about that game and i mean you think yeah. about the importance of that game you know florida why can't they challenge clem i mean i'm just saying georgia and florida i think is going to be an important matchup it is it is it's which a- is fun because it always used to be sort of i remember the steve spurrier days you know back uh, back when i was growing up um uh, of florida and it sort of seemed when Florida lost to Kentucky, it was like, oh, you know, here we go again with Florida being massively overrated, and they've had this letdown loss against a team that they haven't lost to in, what, like 30 years or something. They ended up actually being pretty good, and, and they um, uh, they beat LSU, so who knows? Maybe they'll have a chance against Georgia. As a Georgia Tech alumnus, I always root for the team that's playing against Georgia. <laughs> well, um, you know, that that's understandable up until when they're playing Alabama. So most people are just happy that there's somebody down there who might give Alabama a run. You know, this guy's took them as far as they could take them in the in the final last year. All right, that's a little bit on college football. How about on the pro football side? You wrote a piece last week on 
Philip Rivers having the supporting cast he deserves again. So Rivers, you know, he just seems to keep on keeping on, right? He was very highly um, picked draft pick back in the day. He's never been on a team that was really kind of up to his quality. Can you? What did you see when you dug into this? Yeah, I think, you know, Philip Rivers is a really interesting quarterback because he is in this generation of other quarterbacks who all have Super Bowl rings. You know, Eli Manning, famously, there was the trade in the draft in 2004. Ben Roethlisberger was also in that draft class, uh, a multi-time Super Bowl champion himself. Philip Rivers has the numbers to be above those guys, even in kind of the pantheon of quarterbacks. I think he's a Hall of Famer either way. And if you hear people who sort of are, are coaches uh, or scouts talk about the great quarterbacks in the game, they always have to, you know, tip their cap to Philip Rivers at least and be like, look, this guy is legitimately great. Uh, but, yeah, ever since that Ladanian Tomlinson kind of Antonio Gates core uh, kind of broke up, Gates is still on the team, but he, um, he he's not who he used to be, uh, of course. Uh, he, they've really struggled to put a defense around him. They've struggled with the running game at times. Uh, and they've also had some terrifically bad special teams and some bad luck in close games because of the special teams. Wow. Last year they lost a bunch of games because they missed field goals and they had, you know, uh, they, they had some misadventures in that department. This year's uh, Chargers team, though, is, has taken care of business in the first half of the season, and I don't, uh, I think they, you know, they're not going to win the the uh, the West because the Chiefs just look so good. Uh, and, and I could spend all segment talking about how great Patrick Mahomes is. Uh, but the Chargers have set themselves up to be in a great position to get the wild card, and maybe they can do something there. Philip Rivers doesn't have that many more years left, so I'd like to see something good happen for him. Uh, but, gosh, Kansas City, I, well, I, I, I we do want to hear. You guys we, take on Kansas. We but do. don't you feel, before we talk about Pat Mahomes, just one second, don't you feel, Neil, a little bit bad again for San Diego, uh, the Chargers? Listen to what you just said, Lally Chargers. Listen to what you just said again. So they're not going to win the division. So now they got to go on the road and potentially, you know, the last time I checked, the Patriots are still in the AFC. So now you're thinking, right. and, and you know, since they're going to be the wild card, they'll probably they may end up being the road team against whether it's the Steelers too. They're probably going to have to go through either Foxborough or, or Arrowhead. Or, uh, yeah, you're assuming they're the one, too, right? Mm-hmm. So either, but maybe play both. Maybe both. So maybe both. So don't you feel a little bit bad for them again? Like the one year, maybe they end up 11-5. and five. They end up as the five <laughs> seed and, you know, and et cetera. And they're still not going to the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, all roads lead through Foxborough or, or um, you know, some of the other powers in the AFC either way. Uh, but I think for the Chargers, they, they haven't made the playoffs at all since 2013. Uh, and they've only made it once since 2009 so i do think everything is kind of relative uh, in that regard um but yeah and also you know it it does kind of stink that we're moving out of an era it seems like and i don't know what you guys take is on this but there was an era around maybe like the late 2000 uh late 2000s early 2010s where if you just got into the playoffs and you had a quarterback who you know had a gunslinger's chance you could potentially win a Super Bowl. You saw Eli Manning do that a couple times. You saw Joe Flacco do that. Uh, ben Roethlisberger. Nick Foles. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, Nick Foles did, did it last year, but that was a little bit of the outlier. It seemed like the, the teams that were supposed to win, and even the Eagles were you know, the favorite until Wentz went down, um, that the teams that are supposed to win are winning more uh, of the Super Bowls recently than they did just like, you know, 10 years ago, and that's kind of also bad for, for somebody like Philip Rivers, who's like, look, this is a guy that if you just get him into the playoffs, maybe he could win some games for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we leave NFL, I do want to hear your thoughts on the Chiefs. So, by the way, Massey Peabody projects 
the Chargers as one of only five teams with greater than 10 wins. So they're definitely uh-huh. up there. And we have them like number five or six in the league. But, of course, KC is right there with them. The tough thing about projecting KC is that they're so outperforming their priors that you, you yeah. know, generally priors are there for a reason and you want to regress back to them. But maybe something's different with this team than has been in the past and therefore the priors aren't as relevant. That main thing would be Mahomes, both his ability and the offense he allows them to play. The yeah. downside of Kansas City is their defense, of course. And so I think it's a little premature to usher them into a guaranteed division win and, and you know, to, to continue the level of performance they've had so far because they're literally having to outscore people. And we've seen Kansas City teams under Andy Reid start really hot and then kind of collapse down the stretch. I mean, they did it just last year. So I guess it kind of comes down to your question of, you know, what does it say about Pat Mahomes and what does it say about Alex Smith? Because the um, the supporting cast is pretty much the same, and it's also really great. It seems like um, Reid and Mahomes are getting even more out of Kareem Hunt, even more out right. of Tyreek Hill right. uh, than, than they had in the past uh, with just the new things that Reed can do with his offense because he has somebody like Mahomes who, who has such a quick release and such a strong arm and so much mobility you know, to kind of make things happen outside the pocket. So I think Mahomes is the real deal. I just really enjoy watching, <laughs> watching him play, I think, mainly. Uh, and, and so maybe I'm a little bit um, biased away from you know how much we have to regress into the mean. Right. But it's a great question because I don't think we've ever seen outside of what like Kurt Warner in 1999 or something like this uh, somebody come out and have the start to a career, not the start <laughs> right. to a season even, but like this is I think he's eight starts into his career. Yeah, and, and to put up the numbers that he did, this is like Warner esque. Well, and, and it's also Warner esque. Not it's not quite as extreme as Warner because he came from being a grocery clerk or something but 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 Mahomes you know he was a first round pick but it took it took late into the draft season for people to even to warm up to the idea and it took a team to to move up and there was still a lot of controversy on Mahomes a lot of people well, didn't think Mahomes could play freaking NFL quarterback yeah uh, and and this is actually a story that I've kind of got in the works that I'm tinkering with is this notion of is he already the most successful you know kind of air raid college quarterback in the NFL ever uh like who else is in that conversation how many times have we seen a guy from one of these trick offenses and you can even go back you know like the Ty Detmers of the world you know in in BYU's heyday uh all these guys that put up these crazy numbers Andre Ware uh that in the run and shoot uh Colt Brennan uh they never amounted to a hill of beans in the NFL and Patrick Mahomes has actually improved upon or at least continued that 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 pace from college to the pros that's pretty unprecedented in an era where it's interesting if you put up great quarterback numbers in college it's a red flag in a lot of ways for scouts yeah hey by by the way neil you're not supposed to be the one perpetuating this myth about trick offenses those trick offenses are now like being deployed in the nfl now i know i know that's right (laughs) so neil i just want to ask how do you think about and decompose pat mahomes from the amazing amount of talent that's around him so like you know if you want to think about it wins above replacement like let's put pat mahomes on an average nfl let's put him on my buccaneers who by the way also have a great offense but if you put slot an average quarterback, whoever you want to pick, into the Chiefs, how much better is Pat Mahomes doing than an average quarterback would do? Oh, gosh. That's a great question. Well, I don't think he's doing what he's doing in Kansas City, for sure. Um, and that speaks – we even did a story. I don't know if I talked to you guys about this, but we did a story where we looked at first-time starting quarterbacks and the quality of the supporting cast that they have 
uh, their first season. And Mahomes was in the top like 10 all time. Uh, if, if you looked at the most talented, I think we used approximate value from, from pro football reference. So, yeah, that makes a difference for, for somebody's numbers. Um, but I, I still think if you took him out and put him on, you know, an average team or something, he would be putting up above average numbers, uh, if, if that answers the question. Well, and you also suggested earlier that there was this interaction, which is this interesting thing about NFL and hard thing about NFL, that he makes heel and hunt better. And so mm-hmm. it's not just that they make him better. They're, they, they, those guys are super talented, but maybe they're even more talented with him than they were with Alex Smith, who's a perfectly you know perfectly suitable quarterback, frankly. All right, Neil Peen, we're down to the last few minutes. Apparently, we're not going to make decathlon level 10 sport, <laughs> but we do have pentathlon in front of us. What about the NBA? Help us out. We're just into the season. What do you make of it so far? Well, the big thing to take away from the start of this NBA season is just the level of scoring, the offense that's happening. I looked at this the other day. I, I think it's probably continued. I think there was some game last night that was like in the 140s uh, for each team uh, that teams are scoring 113 <laughs> points per game, I want to say. Uh, so yeah, it's the highest is, in the history, or at least since like the modern game, since the ABA yeah, right. merger. I'm glad y'all yeah, said like, this. I saw the... the Wilt Chamberlain. Uh, we're talking about it's 113.4 and it's because pace has gone up more possessions per game uh, they're up over 100 possessions per game that's the first time that's been true since 1989 I don't know if it'll hold uh, but it's kind of a far cry from what we saw just a few years ago and they've also improved their efficiency in terms of scoring per possession they're up a, over 110 points per 100 possessions that number hasn't been reached uh, I think ever in the post-merger era. Uh, no no league average has been above 110 points per 100 possessions. So we're seeing a crazy amount of offense. I don't know exactly why uh, people have kind of floated some, some ideas about, and I made a tweak to the, to the shot clock after, um, you know, after a dead ball or something. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I really don't know why, why they're scoring. Well, I can so give you an example from last defense. night's game that you're referring. Well, it was mm-hmm. two nights ago that the Lakers uh, were over 140. Last night, the Sixers and the Pistons played. They the scored Sixers, over 130. Lake Griffin scores 50. Score, I saw the game. Um, between the two teams, they shot 76 threes in the game. Last time I checked, three is worth more than two. It's worth a lot more than two. And so 76 three-pointers were shot in that game. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that in the first year of the three-point shot, three point shot <coughs> that the team that shot the most all season, all season, were the Lakers, and it was less than 73 or 76. Whatever that number you just gave was more right. than the entire season. There was 76 season. just in last night's game. So that, it has to be some way connected to the change in the style of offense, right? There has to be in some way a Maury Ball influence here somewhere? Yeah, I mean, threes per game are up by uh, 2.6 uh, this season, even compared with last season, and as you guys know, Every successive season sets a new benchmark for most threes attempted in an NBA season now. Uh, so it, it, I guess it has something to do with that. I mean, they're not making them at a higher rate. They're still at roughly you know, 35 to 36%, but they are taking them more than ever. And I wonder when we will hit that diminishing return. Like, what is the most right. proportion of shots in a basketball game that can be threes? Like, have we maxed that out? Uh, or, or I mean, clearly we haven't, but we've maxed out certain areas, right? Like corner threes as a proportion of all shots and, and even as a proportion of threes taken, maybe especially, 
are actually pretty flat now, and they have been. You know, that was a great analytical innovation of the past, you know, 20 years was take the corner three. It's shorter, and also defenses have trouble getting a guy over there to, to close out on it. It's pretty much flattened out, and yet they are still adding threes, which means they're adding above-the-break threes, which are these threes that are crazy deep, and they're, you know, sort of straight on. And they're often off the dribble also because it's a lot, you know, uh, the, the corner three is a catch-and-shoot uh, shot, but the, the shot above the break is more of an off-the-dribble shot. So it's astounding to me that they've managed to maintain the same level of efficiency as they've increased the volume so much. That's what I wanted to compliment you for, Neil. You said a stat which may have eluded some of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball. You would think as the number of threes is increasing, the efficiency and the make rate would go down considerably, and that's exactly what we're not seeing. And that, to me, is remarkable. So, uh, Neil, we're just down to a minute or so. Can you tell us, is there anything we've learned about the team? So we talked about the, the style of play, but have we learned anything positive or negative about anybody? So early in the season, teams have played three or four games, but have we seen anything worth attention? Well, you know, I'd keep an eye on the Nuggets. They're 4-0 right now. They're actually the biggest gainers in our uh, Carmelo uh, ratings to start the season, uh, and they look like they could be even better than, you know, they were kind of a, a league pass darling for a lot of people last year. I think the Bucks might, this might finally be the year that they take uh, that leap forward. People have been waiting for that to happen since they have Giannis. Uh, they already have the, the superstar in place, and it hasn't happened over the years, uh, but this year... New coach, new system, and Giannis developing. Maybe this is uh, the year that they take that step forward. And then the Raptors, uh, Kawhi Leonard looks healthy. He looks motivated. He looks great. I don't know if he's going to stay there more than just this year, which is kind of a concern for Toronto. But for this year, uh, if it's a one-year show, uh, I I think they have as good a chance to win the East as just about anybody, and that includes the Celtics. That includes the Sixers. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Neil, thanks, man. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Hey, thanks for having me on. Maybe next time we'll get to the 10 sports. I know. We need the next five. We'll work on the next five next time. Got to round out your skills. All right. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. That was Neil Payne, longtime friend of the show, senior writer and general editor at 538. You can find his work there. You can also find him on Twitter at Neil underscore Payne. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Ken Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Talking sports analytics. You can talk sports analytics with us. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or Hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle up there. That's Danielle Bruno bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, as she does every week, sound engineer. We depend on her heavily. She also handles our podcast coming up later today. Uh, Patty Hall stepping in, running the show. Big boss. The big boss is in town. We're we're, we're having to mind our P's and Q's today because we got the captain in the chair back there. Producing the show, Matty Dats off on the West Coast doing he he moonlights on us a little bit. He we're not the only show in his life. It turns out so disappointing. We're not. Mm-hmm. This isn't the only Sad thing we do Trump. during the week either. So that's fair. <laughs> Shh. We have just gotten off the phone with Neil Payne. It's always a pleasure to talk to Neil. The guy can um, can write a bit, can run some numbers, knows a few things about a few sports. Uh, we 
could always talk a little bit more about football, fellas. I think that's the thing that we've yeah. mined the least so far. I'm curious. We've talked a little pro football. We were, you know, talking about the Eagles and a few things bouncing around. What else in the NFL are you guys paying attention to right now? What do you think we've learned? We're almost to the halfway point of the season. Well, the two things that struck my eye, at least from last weekend's games, which I, you know, I was mm-hmm. watching all of them quite a bit, was the first thing was that um, at the end of the Titans-Charger game, which was one of the games played in England, so it was in the morning. It was the only game that was on. Um, I believe I'll make the number up, but I don't think I'm wrong. I, the score was 20-13 to 13 Chargers with 13, 30 seconds left. The Titans scored a touchdown to make it 20 to 19. I think you guys all know the stat. Like Marcus Mariota in his career has never thrown an interception in the red zone, which is interesting. I did not know that. He's never. So they got to 20 to 19. That's absurd. And definitively, they went for two. Yeah. Now, they didn't make it. I don't like the play call that they did. They tried to squeeze a ball to the guy in the back of the end zone. Not a fade, not a have him roll out. Like Mariota stayed in the traditional pocket. And of course, the other team dropped seven guys. But. I started to do the math and think about should they have gone for two there. And you start to think to yourself, all right, well, let's say they go for the extra point. As you know, that's not a gimme anymore. Let's yeah, let's yeah. assume, and we'll get to Justin Tucker in a second. So that's point nine. Let's say that they make the extra point. And then you're at 50%, let's say, in the overtime. So now you're at point four five to actually win the game. That's about the conversion rate for two-point conversions. So from an expected wins percentage, I'm thinking to myself, it's pretty reasonable. From a risk-taking percentage, I'm now starting to think maybe it wasn't worth the risk given there is no you – know, it's the risk-reward trade. You're getting the same expected value but much higher variance. At least that's how I thought about it. Yeah, I and, and I mean I think that the risk conversion because usually when you know, the denominator of those two point conversions is a lot of kind of desperation, right? I mean I mean usually when you're making a two point conversion, it's because you have to. Essentially you're catching up or something like that, or maybe your kicker's this injured is a very or whatever. Good point. This is great you know, point. And so to do this like kind of entirely optional where it, it is not a situation where it's been forced upon you, I think for better or for worse, people are held to a different standard on those kind of, you know... But do you think like, the conversion rate is higher? Saying, yeah, you're saying the conversion rate is higher when it's optional. Because almost by definition, desperation would drive it down. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Well, that would that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. That would flip the equation yeah. entirely. And actually, I didn't mind them going for two at the time because they didn't seem to be having any trouble. And by the way, just to let you know, I should add one extra fact. They had two chances at it. The first time they went for it for two... There was a hold. It didn't wasn't completed. There was a holding penalty on uh, the Chargers. So now they're trying it from the one yard line. Oh my! And so not only did they not make it, but they didn't make it twice, mm-hmm. and once from the two yard yard line, and once from the one yard line. Which did they I, try and pass it both times? They did, and that surprised me also. And mm-hmm. they didn't roll out Mariota either time. Yeah, that's you know, kind of crazy. Uh, this thing that's emerging now, which is phenomenal, is that teams when they're down by two touchdowns and score. They're beginning to go for two on the first touchdown so that they they will then either be down six or eight. eight. And if they're down by only six, then they can next time, if they do score the next time, kick a PAT to win the game. If they miss and they're down by eight, they have to convert it which the one's, time. That's Which one's better? Are you going for one out of two twos, which puts you at the same place as potentially making both ones. But yeah, you just play out the decision tree. It's not as crazy as it sounds. No, no, no. There are a lot of folks who think this is the thing to do. Um, and Peterson did it two weeks ago, I think, with the Eagles. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, we, we saw already this. saw the Ravens should have gone for it 
uh, <laughs> gone for two in the last second to beat the Saints, Well, let's too. talk about that for a second. So Justin Tucker, many people think he's the best kicker. Many people think he's one of the best kickers in all time. And he's the most accurate time. kicker of all time. He had time. never missed an extra point in seven years. And in never, his entire career. And he never missed in college either. Okay, so, so he had never missed. So over 300 attempts, pro in college, and he'd never missed. Of course, only in recent years have they bumped it back a little bit. But the apparently the wind was a real challenge down there. He had barely made a field goal earlier in the game. Yep. This was on the same end of the field. And, in fact, the, the, the team they were playing decided to forego a field goal on the same end of the field earlier in the game, possibly because of the wind. And I know guys have looked at that kick and thought that kick was just fine and just the wind took it it was i've never seen anything like it because well you saw the expression on tucker's face (laughs) i did i know but halfway between his foot and the goalposts not only does that kick look good but it looked right down the center (laughs) and there was nothing about its trajectory like it's like well it's right down the center but yeah it was coming from no he was in the center it was in the center and then it just got blown. Do these guys to the need, right. to, need to play the wind? If there's that much wind, could he have played the wind? It may not have been predictable wind. Like is it golf where you're you know you just got to actually is he he's good enough to play the wind if he needed it to? It just seemed like well or the other thing to do is to just blast it through the wind and mm-hmm. you know it is a thirty yard kick or thirty three whatever so just blast it through the wind heat, a little, a little more, heat more heat on it. I don't know mm-hmm. when it missed. I was like, how did that happen? Yeah. Well, the thing is, it cost them the game, if you don't know. This the, this was right. a last-minute touchdown to come from behind to tie the game. It would have taken it into overtime. So it's it's painful that this very rare PAT miss by this guy, one in 300-something, actually was a game-losing miss. So these, these, these extra points and these two-point decisions are kind of interesting. Anything else around the league? So we've talked a little bit with um, Neil about KC and the Chargers over there. We didn't talk as much about the NFC. The Saints, were, of course, that's the team that benefited from that missed PAT. They still seem to be, if not the class of the NFC, one of the top two teams. The Rams are really kind of running away from it. We have them as the number one team in the league and also projected at almost two games better than anybody else. Yeah. Can I just, I want to ask you a quick question about how you think about, let me just, the only reason I'm going to talk, because you mentioned the Saints, they have one loss this year to the Buccaneers at home. And so when you look at the Buccaneers in Massey Peabody, I'm interested to hear, because let's remember who they've beaten, the Buccaneers, so far. So the Buccaneers beat the Saints, they beat the Eagles, they lost, although they didn't play a great first half, they barely lost to the Steelers. Remember, this was while Fitzmagic was still going. This past weekend, they beat the Browns. Not an awful win, but not a great win. Actually, of all the teams in the NFC, they have the highest, I guess they call it, strength of victory. Do you have the Buccaneers improving at all in Massey Peabody, or are they still like a bottom third team from your guys' prediction? Because at some point, I mean, they have gotten good wins. They also got blown out by the Bears. They had an embarrassing loss to Atlanta. Where do you guys kind of have the Bucs? Still in the bottom third? We have them at 25, so that's definitely bottom, you know, early bottom third. But um, we also didn't move them this week. I could dig back further than that if you'd like. But that, that, who, who are their neighbors down there? The Titans are neighbors down there. Uh, the Niners are a little south of them, but that's kind of Jets, Titans, Bucks. That's probably about right. Yeah. I mean, those teams aren't awful, and the Bucks aren't awful. I'm just interested to hear. I'm not buying into the Saints, by the way. I'm still not buying. Well, them. they've the, they've won a lot of kind of they've won the close games so far. I mean, they almost got beat by the Browns, and they clearly almost. Let's remember. Lost, let's so let's remember how they lost to the Bucks. The Bucks scored 48 on them yeah. in New Orleans. Let's remember how the Browns lost to them too. 
The Browns tied the score with five seconds left, and the Browns kicker missed an extra point. Yeah. Then in overtime, the Browns kicker missed a 35-yard field goal to win the game, and then eventually the Saints kicked a field goal to win it. So, again, we talk about the yeah. Cleveland has got go to be way. thinking to themselves. And by the way, Cleveland in the Buccaneers game, Cleveland missed a field goal before the 59-yarder that the Buccaneers won the game on. Cleveland missed a field goal uh, in that game, yeah. too, that would have won them the game. You know, despite all these close close losses by the Browns, we still make them only the next the 31st best team in the league. We're not talking about a team we're not buying. I'm not buying that one. Well, Let's how much, again, at, priors going into that now? Well, I mean, they're a great example, right? Yeah, but, the, you know, yes, but they should have come off those priors. They, that's yeah. where we had them to begin with. They're seven games in, so there's room to move off the priors. Can we look at some matchups for the weekend? So who do you, when you look around, y'all need to get me motivated about the season because – I just want to look at the schedule. I don't. Even, I don't even want to watch these games. Saints at Vikings. Saints Vikings is the only game I want to watch. Oh this come weekend. on! No 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 no. Ra- Ravens Panthers. Ravens is Panthers. Be a great game. Okay. I personally give you, think. I'll, also, I'll give you don't want one. to look. Packers Rams. Packers Rams. That was the other one that pa- I saw. We make that a twelve point game. What? A twelve point game. I mean, oh, I the don't Rams think are with Aaron Rodgers. It's ever like a twelve point game. I'd like man. to believe that's true, but let, let's begin with the Rams being the best team in the league. Let's let's begin yeah, with their yeah, hosting uh, this game, yeah, and then the pack. Okay. We have the pack squarely average team. I mean, full on average team. Down there. I don't think with Aaron Rodgers, it's ever going to be an average team. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I think this is one of those opportunities. I, I I'm going to try to text or contact Rufus about this. I think this is a bet on the Rams. I think the Ra- I I'm not buying the Packers. I think the Packers are very, very average this year. I don't think their defense is going to stop anybody here. Well, and the Rams no, defense, the Rams defense looks to me like it's improving greatly. What's, yeah. I've, I heard talk about that being the longest line that Rodgers has faced. What is it? Eight, eight, nine points? Something yeah, like that? eight and a half. It eight says and a half. So we, I mean, we, we like, we like, we like the Rams on that one. Okay, let's talk about the Saints and Vikings because yeah. that is kind of the marquee matchup of the of the weekend. Saints are going to Minnesota. Um, I, I mean, we've kind of liked Minnesota from the beginning of the season, but they're not quite getting it done, right? So, what well, they've you... had a couple flops, like that Buffalo game. I don't know what the heck was going on there, um, and certainly the first half against Green Bay was terrible too. But no, I, I still think Minnesota's really strong. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, I would consider. I, I think that game's a toss-up, to be honest. So um, the, the, maybe even give Minnesota an advantage just because the home field. Can somebody explain to the, me this? The one line is the line is two and a half. They, yeah, they do so. give Minnesota exactly the home field advantage. Okay. So it is the home, that's what home field. is So they're worth. basically saying those two teams are equal, the, um, which seems crazy to me. I think another game great, that you have to crazy. look at from a betting line point of view. Most people, without looking at Massey P Betty on the screen for a second, just. Shane, without looking at the piece of paper in front of you, if I have to tell you, Redskins, Giants, what's I know, the line I, I, in that I, game? I unfortunately already saw the I line on that. You know, my, How, my reaction what would is, what, go- what chores do I have to do around the house? No, no, but what would you guess the line would be on that <laughs> Red game? Redskins against Giants. Redskins, Giants. Redskins are 4-2, and two, Giants are 1-6. and six. I would have thought that, where is it? The game's at Giants. Close to even. You would have thought what? that. Yeah. It's not like the Redskins are good. They're a 500 team, more or less. Giants, no one's as bad as the record suggests early on. They're hosting well, the game. You yeah. are See, correct. Yeah, I, you I, are correct. Yeah, I, guess, I, would have right. guessed, I would have guessed it's minus one I, well, for the I would, Redskins. I, I mean, I, the Giants look like they I would could have guessed, be historically bad. I would have guessed bad, somewhere between me, a four to five point spread yeah. for the Redskins. We're still early. We're I mean, we're talking early about in the pretend, season. Yeah, I mean, you, okay. get so, you get fooled by these four and two records yeah. and one and five records. I mean, you know, it's still a small sample. It really is. And we, look at all the fluky stuff we've talked about on the no, show. No, I, 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 I agree with that. And I, and, I, and I certainly, uh, I, I buy, 
I buy into your argumentation that like four and two, we, we don't know enough about the Redskins to say they're good. I think we've seen enough in the Giants to say they're not. They're not gonna, good. <laughs> I need your guys. They're help. not going to be at like nine and I seven. I need your at help. The end but, pro, of the but pro football teams are never. I mean, not, not never are rarely that bad. So like yeah. the Cardinals are truly bad. The Bills, when Peterman's playing tragically bad but that's not what we're talking about here yeah. we're talking no, about a poor a poor By the way, let me tell you why i need your 30 seconds why i need your guys help on a specific game which is san francisco and arizona now that's are two bad teams but yeah. here's why i need help yeah so out of 900 people my friend steve siegel and i are in an eliminator pool i've been talking about this there's 900 people that started there's 50 left we're one of the 50 but the thing is the tiebreaker at the end of the season is the total wins of the teams that you pick on four, we've picked lots of favorites we're in the bottom third. So I need to, at some yeah, point, I need right. to start picking. This game seems to me to be an opportunity to pick a bad team to win. Yikes. And so I'm scared to do it because I don't want to go out in week eight. But on the other hand, if I could pick like San Francisco, which is what I'm tempted to do. On the road? San Francisco on the road? I mean, I know it's It's Arizona. not against the spread, by the way. I just need San Francisco oh, to win the game. I know. It's just, oof. Am I nuts? Is it too early Who's in the season? Buffalo this week? Oh, Oh, the Patriots! Yeah, but remember, that. I can't. I know, but I can't. Pick, you can't pick the same team twice. <laughs> yeah, no. So I, know, I already I know. used the pass. I, 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 yeah, we yeah, think yeah. it's better than the line. So the line is a pick them there. We we actually think the Niners are, should be favored by about two and a half. And so we're with you on yeah. that. But I'm not sure how. No, you, that doesn't make me feel all right. So never mind. I don't think I'm picking them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how how good do you want to? I mean, I don't know what you're looking for. If you have to pick a bad team, I have to pick a bad team. But the question, I do I have to do it in week eight? Yeah. I'm not sure. No. Maybe I'll wait till three or four weeks to go to start picking some. Let's talk a little. A little bit about college football. We mentioned some games when we were talking to Neil. Two big Southeast Conference games with Alabama going to end LSU. Eric, you've been fired up at LSU all year. This is the time I for them really to have. It. I really have, and I've been a believer. I'm not believing it this week. Well, no, what's I, the spread on this one? Or, you know, what's the, what's the line on this one? You know, I, I don't have a line in front of me. We would make it two touchdowns. So wow. I'm, I suspect that it's going to be close to that. I, mean, I suspect the line is going to be close to yeah. that. And that's that's giving LSU a home field advantage, you know. So if, if on a neutral field, we would favor Alabama by 18 points. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, this is one of those situations. College this is crazy how I, to me, man. Well, this is my prediction of how, my prediction They're of how the game's going to go. I know of how the game's going to go. I think LSU can keep it close, but at the end of the day, Alabama can wear them down. And I don't see LSU scoring enough points. I think Alabama's finally got a, you know, a pro quarterback back there. And I just think Alabama's going to put up 30. And I don't see LSU putting up more. Well, maybe they'll cover 18 or whatever the number is. Maybe LSU puts up 14, 17. But I don't see this game as being competitive. You know, it's our last chance, really, to get Alabama in the regular season. But I'm mostly with Eric. I would love to see it. I'd um, love to see I, it. So let me just run you down real quick our playoff probabilities because they do really fall into tiers right now. Clemson and Alabama, we both see it 90%, 92%. Clemson being a little bit easier to get in there. Clearly in a class by themselves. Just and, before we leave Clemson and Alabama, can either of them could lose a game along the way and still oh yeah, be those, fine. They, and that's why you have them at so high. Well, that and how good they are and their relatively easy schedule. All three reasons. But exactly, they have games to give. Next tier, Notre Dame, Michigan, Oklahoma, all really close to 50%, really close to each other. They um, they 
have very good teams and relatively favorable schedules, though Michigan does have to go through Ohio State. They probably don't have games to give those So teams. why, just tell, just tell our listeners out there, Texas did beat Oklahoma. Yeah. So why is it because of the strength of remaining schedule that Texas is farther down than Oklahoma, or just the strength of the team? You just strength, have Oklahoma as much strength higher. Strength of the team, we, you know, I hate to say it, but we still believe in Oklahoma big time, and Texas is kind of middling down there around 18 or 19. If they were played again tomorrow in Dallas on a neutral field, we'd make Oklahoma a big favorite. Okay. Un- unfortunately, that's the way it looks. Next here... Georgia and Ohio State. So despite the loss, Ohio State is still in this mix. If they went out and they beat Michigan, people are going to not forget what happened at Purdue last weekend, but they can probably clear. Now, if they get into a, a political battle of one-loss teams, that might hurt them. It did last year, but they're still in the mix. Fourth tier, now our two teams, Texas and LSU, but they're real long. So this is 7%, 6% to make the playoffs. And then fifth tier is kind of everybody else. Wanted to give you that rundown. In our last few minutes, let's do, for the first time in a while, a solid over-under segment. It's Warden Moneyball's over-under. So, Eric, you got a few there. We got a sheet. Eric's going to give us a find out what he thinks is interesting. Okay. So I'll start with, uh, let's stay on the World Series for just a second. Let's go for 1.5 wins by the road team. So the, will the road team win more than one game in the World Series? So, Shane, I'll, I'll start with you. Yes, because the Red Sox are sweeping. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Over. <laughs> All right. Well, that Anal- is a path that gets you there. Analytics yep. take. Analytics yep. take. Hot take. So one of the first things you got to think about is how many road games, how many games are going to be played. So the fewer games that would be played are going to work against this happening. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be real quick, without thinking about it, say, no, nah, we're not going to go seven. We'll go just a few games, and that's not going to give the road team enough chances. All right. I'm going over because I think the likely path I'm believing in this World Series is four to one Red Sox, which means I think either – the Dodgers win game two. That's one of my two road games. Yeah. Or the Red Sox win game two, but win two out of three at Dodgers. So yeah, I'm going I'm, over. I'm, I'm revising my answer. It was internally inconsistent. You can't have short series and no road wins. So I'm going to go over as well. Well, that's why if it goes four or five, <laughs> by definition, yeah. we're, we're going to go there. Let's go with another one. Um, here, we're, we're sitting here in the city of brotherly love. 1.5 place finish for the Eagles in the NFC East. So in other words, do the Eagles win the division? Or are they not even the division winner this year? Cade, we'll start with you. Well, so I just I'll just go with Massey Peabody. So we're projecting them as something like a thirty eight percent chance to win the division, which is more or less the same as Washington. So I think that they, um, but but and I think they've been under their their quality so far. I do not believe in anything Dan Snyder is running. So I'll go with Eagles. Yeah, I'm going to go with I mean I'm, I'm basically I mean under Yeah, you're you're basically doing the analytical version of what I was going to say, which is I think the Eagles are the uh, most fundamentally actually sound team in that division and I think, you know, the fact that they are at 3 and 4 now is a little bit of bad luck as well as, you know, bad performance so far. Um, I, I think they will win the division, so I guess I'll take the under on that. And I'm going with the under as well. Maybe the last one. This one is shocking to me that it's even worth discussing, but let's put it up there. 4.5 as the Lakers seed in the playoffs. <laughs> it intuitively feels really wrong. Really wrong. But they're starting 0-3. We can't read too much into an 0-3. The question is whether LeBron can, you know, that team will gel eventually around LeBron. How bad a team can really be with LeBron James? No, but also you have to add in, here are some teams we know they're not better well, than in the right. West. The Warriors, so the Thunder, Rockets. Rockets. So that means they've got to be the best of the rest. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. 
I mean, Utah <laughs> looks good. Denver looks good. Neil Payne talked about that. You know, there's lots of teams yeah. in the West. Here's, here's the other thing. They could end up the season the fourth best team in the West, but not have the fourth seed because they might take a while to come together. This is, I think, the most likely thing mm, to happen is they struggle, they struggle for yeah, a while and yeah. they end up stronger than they begin, and I'm going to go under then. Yeah. I, that's, that's, that's a little support, I think, for the answer with there. What are you going to do, Eric? Um, if, if over means fifth or worse, I'm going over. I don't think there's any chance they're a top four seed in the yeah, West. Yeah, yeah. Zero. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think there's some chance, but I, I feel like I got just like you and Dan Snyder. Well. I'm the same way in the recent years about Rajon Rondo. Any team that Rondo's lead, if you're uh, counting on oh, Rajon Rondo, right. I love his game. I love his game, but he'll 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 explode that team somehow, some way. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday. This has been Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddies Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Audie Weiner was around for the, about the first 45 minutes. Daniel Bruno on the soundboard and Patty Hall running the show in place of usual boss man, Matty Dats. We will be back next week. Hope you can join us between now and then. Enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.